the book of First, uh, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. Actually, let's turn to Ephesians first. Uh, probably be good for us to spend some time in Ephesians one before we get to Second Corinthians. Justice in this world to reign. Wrongdoing will be met with punishment. Every misdeed, every wrong will be set right. And just a little note about the notes. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to put everything together for you. So on the back there's 2 Corinthians 5:10 through 21 notes, and we'll work through that passage together. And then the front uh, is the first two points, sin's effect, first three points, sin's effect, reconciliation, and new creation. We will look at all of those before we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then in Christ, we will look at what we have done in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I will try to point you back and forth there. I've got a copy of your notes here. I'll deal with that. But at the beginning of time, we saw that God created a world of order and beauty. It was a world where there was one family, one race, and one goal. And that goal was service of God in a garden of paradise. God created man in his own image for a relationship of love and trust. Man is accountable to God to render to him these that God created for love and trust. Man owes these things to God love, trust, and obedience. And when we say that man owes to God his love and trust and obedience, we're making a very crucial and critical statement about God himself, actually. Here's the important point. When we say that man owes these things to God, we're saying about God that he is worthy of receiving these things from man. It is only right that God received from man his love and his trust and his obedience. God gave life to man so that man could give to God his trust, his love, and his obedience. And it would be an injustice of the highest form if God were not treated as worthy of these things by man. And if he did not actually receive man's love and trust and obedience. God created a world in which he was the supreme focus and a byproduct of this single focus, then, was a world in which peace reigned. Every man's focus was on one goal, God himself. And thus there was no conflict. And it would undo this world if that scheme were reversed. That God was no longer the center, that man 
becomes the center of the universe. This would undo the world and it would descend into chaos. Satan tempted the first man and the first woman with the tantalizing promise that they could be like God. And the reality was that they already were like God. He had made them according to his image. But the serpent set before them the temptation with a false assurance that there was more to be gained that they did not yet have. They could be like God in a way that they were not already. They could become the center of the universe. They could direct their own lives. They could make their own decisions. They could pursue their own agendas and pleasure. God, the serpent told them, was not worthy of their affection and love and trust. Instead, they ought to judge their own minds worthy of trust, their own wills powerful to direct the course of their lives to arrive at their own desired goals. Most importantly, they judged themselves as worthy objects of expending their lives that God had given them upon themselves, that they were the worthy recipients of that life. And this, when Adam and Eve chose to follow the serpent's temptation, this was the entrance point of sin into the world. And it marked the beginning of an ongoing insurrection and rebellion against God. And there were several effects of this insurrection. And this is what we are seeing here at the top of the outline, sin's effect. There were two effects. The first effect was separation from God. This rebellion separated humanity from its creator. God and man are now distant. The eternal, sovereign God, who is just and good, the one who has made this world, to whom man owes his love and trust, he has now distanced himself from this world. Because as he is, he cannot coexist in harmony with this world. It is a world that tramples upon his worth. Human beings insist on setting themselves at the center of this world. And God cannot draw near and participate in that insurrection. He cannot turn a blind eye. It is not right that man should be the center of the world. But that's what we do anyway. And if God were to simply dismiss human sin, he would be perpetuating the injustice. If he were to turn a blind eye, he would be, be denying his very nature as God. And because men have not honored him as God, his wrath burns against them, against them as sinners. And because of sin, the distance between God and humanity is great. But the second effect that sin has had is separate it is separation between men. This rebellion has separated humanity from itself. Ever since man rebelled against God, the universe has been descending into greater and greater depths of chaos and conflict and pandemonium. In response to humanity's bid for autonomy at the Tower of Babel, you remember God confused the languages and he separated the world into individual and distinct people groups, isolating them from one another so that distinct cultures and values and practices sprung up. And until modern times, Geography and the barrier of human language have kept each family relatively separated. But in modern times, humanity has been steadily chipping away at those boundaries that God has put in place between differing people groups. And now in this age of jet travel and internet fibers, the families of the earth have met together once again. 
We are closer to each other than ever before, and yet we have found that we are actually further apart from each other than we ever dreamed. Our closeness only serves to show just how radically separated we are from each other. And the events, particularly in the last hundred years, perhaps like few other periods of time, the world wars we've experienced, they have pushed this back to the front that humanity cannot get along with itself. The harmony of the paradise of Eden have been lost. And now what we see is man striving to create his own world for himself. It's a world that exists by man. It's a world that exists through our own human wills and power, and we perpetuate all of this for the sake of our own good. We want to be at the center of our universe. There are seven billion universes on the planet today. Each one of them is mastered by one human being who lives and breathes with one goal in view, to sustain his own life so he can pursue his own dreams in order to satisfy his own desires. And this means then that amongst these seven billion human beings, there is no uniform goal toward which they are all pointed, as was true in the beginning when God was the center of the world. And the result of that is conflict. You want your way and I want mine, and we end up running into each other in our pursuit of ourselves. And the collective power of seven billion autonomous human beings all striving against each other to achieve their own self-defined version of success, the result of that combines to produce a world now of chaos and strife. So sin's effect has been to separate us from God, and it has also been to destroy the relationship that we ought to bear toward other men. And here's the question that we must answer now. How can a good and just God reconcile this world of sinners to himself? How can he set it all right again as it was in the beginning? Let's think for just a moment about what that reconciliation would look like. And here's where we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment. What would this reconciliation look like? Well, the first thing that it would look like is peace with God. Peace between man and God. The distance between man and God must be overcome. God's wrath against sin must be propitiated or appeased. The righteous demands of God's law must be performed. God's own worth must be vindicated. What is needed is an atoning sacrifice. The shedding of blood. A mediator to stand between God and men. We need a God-man who functions as a priest to make atonement for the sins of the people to bring them together once more, God and man. But secondly, this reconciliation would consist in peace among men. Peace between humanity. The distance between man and man must be overcome as well. The strife of warring factions and tribes must give way to peace upon the earth. And the main thing that separates man from man is every person's insistence on his own way. This is where wars and fightings come from, James tells us. From our own desires to please ourselves that wage war, and we end up fighting against each other. This must be exchanged for a pursuit of a common goal and the pleasure of one, not the pleasure of seven billion human beings. In other words, what is needed is a single head, a single mind, a single source of life, 
and a unifying center of gravity. One from whom flows the life of the rest of the universe. One who cares for the needs of every person within that universe so that he does not have to strive for his own good. One to whom the universe looks for unity, for a unifying purpose and goal. A mastermind, one in whom the differing members of the universe may find a common life and for whom they may give up their own life in service of someone, something greater. That is what the world needs. And it's in view of that that what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is breathtaking. In God's good pleasure, this is the goal that this creation will arrive at. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of His will. What is His will? Where is He working all of these things towards? What will be the goal? His will accords with His plan. And that plan is what He set forth in Christ, or what He has planned out in Christ. What does God intend to do in Christ? Here it is. His plan is for the fullness of times. At the end of all things, when times reach their fullness, what will be the state of affairs? It will be this. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. God's great mysterious plan for this universe is that when the times reach their fullness, all things would be united in Christ. Now that word unite has within it the word for a head. And we might say that God's plan is to subsume all things under the headship of Christ. To set him at the head of all creation. This is the goal at which God intends this splintered and fragmented and warring universe will arrive. All things united as one under the headship of Christ. One mind, one life, one goal. And by the sovereign power of God, this will be where the universe arrives. Everything finding its source and its goal in one head, Jesus Christ. He will become the unifying center of all creation. There will not be a strained molecule in all of the universe that does not subject itself to Christ. All of it will derive its light from Christ. It will function under the lordship of Christ. It will operate in the interests of Christ. And it will pursue Christ as its one and only goal. And heaven and earth will be one in Christ. Listen to the following two passages. Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice. You can put this now under new creation. New creation, when God brings all things to their conclusion in Christ, will involve peace with God. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. God! Dwelling upon the earth with man. We have not seen this since the concord of God and man. Heaven and earth will be restored. But the new creation will also involve peace amongst men. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. Jesus Christ will judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It will be over, it will be peace. Man and God restored in perfect harmony. Is that Isaiah? That's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. 
God will dwell amongst men. Creation will be subject to Christ. This is God's grand design for the universe. To sum up all things in Christ. And that will be a glorious day. But this is not a plan that God will only begin to put into operation at a future point in time. Must we wait until that future day to see God at work to reunite all things in Christ? God is actually at work today in the world to reconcile it to himself. In fact, he has already laid the foundation stone of this unity. He has already launched his great plan. He is working towards that goal today. And how is he doing it? When did he begin his work to gather back together this scattered and rebelling creation? There's a passage of scripture that gives us the answer, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5. And we'll spend pretty much the rest of our time in 2 Corinthians 5. Today we will look at a part of what God has done to regather his creation. And in two weeks we will look at the rest of the answer of what God is doing today to reconcile all creation to himself. 2 Corinthians is a book that is written to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's written to the church in Corinth. And Paul writes it in the midst of a rocky and troubled relationship with this church. They had permitted sin in their midst. They had tolerated false teaching. And they had done that under the leadership of people who had infiltrated the church and sought to distance the people in the church from Paul and his authority over them as the apostle of Jesus Christ. These people in the church were seeking to discredit Paul and his ministry and the truth about Christ that Paul was teaching. You know what's it? Yes. And so 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul is defending his apostleship to these people as he is a true apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. We will read, let's read uh, all the way down to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it's good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because... We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look back with me at verse 10. Paul anticipates standing before Christ himself to give account for himself and for his ministry. And therefore, in verse 11, contemplating this moment of account that he knows he must give, this contemplation moves Paul to action. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that I must give account of myself to him, Paul says, I seek to persuade others. His ministry work then moves forward because of something that no one can see. It moves forward because in his heart, Paul fears the Lord. He understands that he must give account of himself. And that's why he says in verse chapter 11, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 11, at the second part of the verse, what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. What's Paul saying? He's saying the thing that motivates me, that moves me forward in ministry is something that you don't see but that God sees. It's in my heart. It is a fear of the Lord. It is an anticipation of giving an account of myself on that day. God sees that, but you don't. And for that reason, it is very easy for you to mistake the reason that my ministry moves forward. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again. Paul says, my ministry is not self-seeking. It's not self-serving. I'm not trying to puff myself up in your, in your vision. Instead, I'm giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be, may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. Paul's reputation here is being attacked by false teachers in Corinth. And so he gives the Corinthian believers reason to trust him as the apostle. He's defending himself, but only so that the Corinthian believers then would have reason to turn around to his opponents in Corinth and to say, we are going to follow Christ and Paul, his true apostle. The Corinthian opponents were judging Paul only by external appearances. He was short, his eyesight was weak, he was not a great orator. Why should you follow a man like this? And Paul says, do not judge by external appearances. Judge by what is in the heart. And in my heart is the fear of God. And knowing this, the ministry moves forward of seeking to persuade men. And then in verse 13, Paul affirms that all that he does, whether his actions seem to show him insane, whether his actions in ministry seem to show him in his right mind, whatever he does, the striking fact about verse 13 is that none of his ministry is for himself. If he labors in such a way that he could be thought of as insane and out of his mind, Paul says, I do that for God's sake. If he labored in such a way that men might look at him and say, this man is in his right mind, Paul says, I do that for your sake, but not for my own. 
Paul's ministry is for the sake of others. He is not self-seeking or self-pleasing. What motivates him then? It is not a love of self. Instead, verse 14, it is the love of Christ. The love of Christ motivates Paul. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one man died, uh, sorry, that, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is motivated by Christ's own love for him. He has died to self with Christ. His ministry is not self-seeking. He lives for Christ's sake and not for his own. And this is what he says God knows about him. God sees his heart, that the motivating force in his heart is the love of Christ which controls him. And this is what he hopes the Corinthian believers will come to know about him as well. That he operates from pure motives, driven forward by the love of Christ. And so what Paul does here in defending himself and seeking to call the Corinthian believers back to himself and back to Christ is not self-serving. In defending himself, Paul is not putting himself forward. Instead, Paul assures them that the external appearances they see are not the whole story. Paul assures them that the internal reality is that he lives under the fear of the Lord, that the love of Christ is what motivates him and pushes him forward, that what he does is for God and for the good of the Corinthian believers and not for his own sake. So Christ has died. Paul says, I no longer live for myself. I live for him who died and rose again for me. And there are two consequences then in this passage of what that means for Paul and for the Corinthian believers. And you can see those two consequences if you look at verse 16. From now on, therefore. And verse 17, therefore. There are two consequences that flow from this understanding that Paul gives them about the fact that Christ has died and now he lives for others under the controlling influence of Christ's love. What are these two consequences? In view of Christ's death for all, so that now they live for him, the first consequence in verse 16 is this. From now on, therefore, we regard no man according to the flesh, according to external appearances. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul says, because I'm no longer motivated by self-love, but by the love of Christ, to live for Christ, I no longer look at human beings in light of external appearances only. Prior to finding Christ, Paul evaluated everyone else based on external appearances. He made superficial assessments of others on the basis of their nationality, their intellectual ability, their social status. Paul was a Pharisee. And his self-righteousness thrived on comparing himself to others and seeing how much better he was than them. He was convinced of his superiority over others by focusing on the externals. And he even regarded Christ in this manner, he says. I saw in Jesus Christ merely a Galilean peasant and nothing more. He was a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. But one day, Paul says, I met Christ on the road to Damascus, and I regard him as that no longer. 
Now he regards him as the Son of God. Now he knows the reality concerning Christ. And now he lives for Christ as the object of his love. He no longer makes superficial judgments and assessments of others. He views people in terms now of their spiritual status before God. No longer as Jew and Gentile. No longer as slave and free. No longer as male and female. Now Paul views them as in Christ. And Paul includes this material here to prompt the Corinthian believers to seek to know him according to the same standard. Paul's opponents in Corinth were pushing the Corinthian believers to regard Paul merely by the externals. Paul says, no, regard me as one motivated by Christ's love. The second consequence of what Paul has told us in verses 14 and 15, we find in verse 17. In view of Christ's death for all so that they would not live for themselves, therefore... Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new, behold, the new has come. Paul says, in Christ, I have been transformed from one who lived for myself to one who lives now motivated by Christ's love. I live for him who died for me. In other words, Christ transforms us. By his death for us, he transforms our pursuits. No longer do we live for self. Now we live for him. And Paul says, if any man therefore is in Christ, he is a new creature. What is new? What is new is his pursuit of Christ. His love for Christ. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. And actually, the way that the original language text reads, it is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. In other words, what God has done in Christ in sending him to die upon the cross for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but live for Christ, what God has done in that is he has begun a new creation. He has picked up human beings who live for themselves. He has sent Christ to the cross to die for them. So that now they live a different way. It is a new creation. It is a new genesis. Conversion to Christ then is the beginning of a new existence in a new world. It is the commencing of a new life. It is a life that partakes of that future age. This is what we saw under the new creation. It is a life of peace with God. A life of peace with man. What is it that is new about people in the new creation? What is it that happens to them when they encounter Christ? We get a clue if we look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This takes us back to the Garden of Eden. When Jesus Christ came and died upon the cross... It was the beginning of a new world. It was a new creation. There, in the Garden of Eden, man, had, man and God had experienced a relationship of love and trust, but sin had brought distance. It had alienated the world from God. But in Christ, we go back to Genesis. It is the creation of a new world. And what is going on 
in this new world. Well, look with me now at verse 18. All of this, this work of new creation, is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. Verse 18 gives us the source of this work of creation, and it's the same source of the original creation. God created the original world, a world of concord, a world of harmony between God and man. And now Christ has come. He has died. And he has begun a new world, a new creation. And all of this is from God. He has done this work. And where has he done the work? Verse 18, he has done it in Christ, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. This work of new creation is God's work just as surely as was the work of creation of this original world. And what is the essence of God's work in new creation? What was he doing in sending Christ to die? In a word, the center of God's work, his great goal, was reconciliation. Uniting all things together to God himself. Reconciliation is simply to restore friendly relationships. Think of two parties, man and God, who are at war with one another. But now, they coexist in a world of peace. This is what Paul expects will be true of the coming age. We saw this in Ephesians 1. That all things will be united in Christ. But this, Paul says, is what God began when Christ came in flesh and died. Paul is telling us here that God has already begun his work in Christ create that new world. In other words, in Christ, he has begun again. The incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection was a new Eden. It was a new creation. It was a new beginning. And all things now to those who are in Christ are new. What kind of things? Specifically in these verses, verse 18, it is our relationship with God. In Christ that has been set right. We have been reconciled to God. The reconciliation and peace between God and this world, between heaven and earth that we expect in the new creation, Christ has begun to work that now. He has reconciled man and God together by the cross. And how did God bring about this peace and reconciliation? Verse 18 it came through Christ. And he expands on that in verse 21. For our sake, God made Christ be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what keeps man and God apart. It is his unrighteousness. It is his sin. But through Christ, through his work, his life, his death, his blood, and his righteousness... God has begun to set men right with himself. That they might be now regarded as the righteousness of God in Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul tells us about God's work of reconciliation. But human beings did not begin this. It was God's work in Christ. We do not contribute anything to this. And there are two ways in this passage that God has brought this reconciliation about. This, we'll go back to our notes now on the first page. God has brought about in Christ 
our peace with God through Christ's very person, through his person in the incarnation. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It's a striking statement in here. Paul's defining for us what it means in verse 18 that Christ has reconciled us to God. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I like the way the King James translates that. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Think about the picture there. Here's Christ as he walks around upon the earth. And God is in him. His humanity and God separated. But now God himself comes down in the person of his son and takes to himself human flesh. And there we have God and man united in one. God is in Christ, beginning the work of reconciling God and man. In his very person, Christ begins the work of reconciliation by his very own deity. And this is why it is significant for Christians that we regard, as the scripture says, Jesus Christ to be very God of very God. Because walking around in Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago was God and man united in human flesh. He was God come in the flesh. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, places a great emphasis now upon the humanity of Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. God and man in one man, Christ Jesus himself. And so, through his very person, his incarnation, both God and man, Jesus Christ begins the work of bringing peace between man and God. But secondly, Christ brings peace with God through his work, his life, and his death and his resurrection. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He sets right our relationship with God by granting us the righteousness that we do not have before God. So let's see if we can just recapture what we've seen here. Man and God are estranged because man is living for himself. And that means that man and man are estranged because we live for ourselves. How is God going to overcome this distance? How is he going to restore the unity and harmony and concord of Eden? God intends a new creation. And how does he bring this new creation about? He sends Jesus Christ in flesh to die. In himself, God and man are brought together in his very person. And by his work, Jesus Christ offers up himself for human beings so that they no longer live for themselves. So that they no longer go their own way. Now they live for the one who has died for them and risen again. Now it's possible that man and God might be united together. And so God has come down. He is in Christ and there is a significant phrase now that we need to note. And with this we will finish up. Look with me in verse 19. That is, God was in Christ. Look with me at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. 
And look at verse 21. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. How is God restoring all things? He is restoring all things to the concord of Eden by uniting in Christ's person, God and man. He is God. He is man. But God is in Christ. And he is picking up fallen, rebellious humans and placing them in Christ too. And in that sphere, in Jesus Christ, God and rebellious humanity are made one. Christ dies so that man no longer lives for himself. Now he lives for the one who died for him. This is how God is making all things new in Christ. He is crucifying human desire to go its own way. He is placing them in Christ so that now in him the concord of Eden is regained. And this is what Paul has to say to us in these verses. God has begun a work of making a world where God and man dwell in perfect And so, this is where we will close. In Christ, we have peace with God. Through His person and through His work. But what about peace among men? By Christ's work, God and man have been reconciled. He has begun a new world in which man and God dwell together in harmony. But what about peace among men? Will that be achieved? This is what's so significant about Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The coming of Christ, the angels appear in the sky to announce his birth. There are two things that will result from the Son of God coming in flesh. The first is this, great glory to God in the highest. And the second is, on earth, peace among men. When Christ came down in flesh and gave up his life, he reconciled man and God. When Christ came down to this earth, he gave up his life. He brought peace among men. Do we see that today? What about the war in Ukraine? What about the two great world wars of the last century? Where is this peace among men? How does God bring it about? Where do we see it today? If God has begun in Christ the work of the new creation by bringing peace with God, we would expect somewhere on earth today to see men be united in peace and harmony and unity. Where do we see this? How does Christ bring peace upon earth? And that is what we will look at in two weeks. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your work in Christ. We were going our own way. You sent him to die for us so that we would no longer go our own way. We would no longer serve ourselves. Now we would live for him who died for us and rose again. You have brought man to regard God as the one worth living for. 
And you have canceled out our unrighteousness against you through Christ. Lord, you have begun today the work of the new creation. You have begun a world in which man and God will once again dwell in harmony. And we give you praise for that, Lord. In Christ, we have found you. In Christ, the relationship is restored. To those who are in Christ Jesus, there is peace with God. Lord, I pray that you would grant us over the next few weeks the eyes to see the work of Christ to bring peace upon earth amongst men. And that we might find his work in the church to be glorious and worthy of our lives. And we ask these things for his sake and in his name. Amen. Well, let's just sing before we finish here. Um, you can take the hymnal. It's 150. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains, everything I thought that was worthwhile, that I had account lost through his work, and poor contempt on all my pride. Through Christ, God has terminated the human impulse to live for itself. That impulse that creates discord, disharmony. In Christ, God has Christ, God has reconciled man to God. And so as we look at this, as we look upon the cross, it, it, it doesn't work for us to continue on living for ourselves. And so were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love that is so amazing and so divine demands my soul, it demands my life, it demands my all.